Hey, I'm Taylor Dorson, and this is the Professional Technical Interviewee. Technical interviews are hard, and every company does them differently. On this show, I interview engineering leaders to see what they look for in technical candidates, and then they perform a real technical interview with me. I hope you enjoy. Great. Uh, well, welcome to the show, Ian. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Taylor. Yeah, happy happy to have you. We we're just commenting. I, I love your background. You're much more. Uh, I think I don't know, you got the whole setup. It's great. It's uh, it's it's definitely bright, and uh, I have a lot of fun with the TV in the background with different logos of of different companies when I'm live streaming or interviewing myself. Uh, you know, I'll throw their logo up there. It's uh, it's it's great fun. I love it. Usually, I'm the one that I feel like I have the fancy podcasting setup, but I think you got to be beat by a mile here. <laughs> what, what, what's even better is writing a little Perl script that I can like make all the lights blink, or, or not Perl, Python, uh, yeah. a little Python script just to uh, make them blink. It's a lot of fun. Oh, cool. Well, well, um, let me introduce you. So, guest today is is Ian Douglas. Uh, he's been a professional developer for for close to twenty six years and worked in a whole yeah. variety of in- industries and roles. Um, but most recently, you've been the the founder of this tech. Uh, let me make sure I get it correct. Tech interview guide. Well, that's the website. Yeah, I just call it tech okay. interview guide. Okay. Tech, tech interview guide, um, to, to help, uh, you also do live streaming, um, as well on a regular basis where you're helping, uh, uh, folks, um, with interview prep and kind of resume prep, uh, and giving them advice and more insight into the industry. And that's how we got to know each other. Um, before yep. that, I know you worked at Turing, which is a, a bootcamp based out of Colorado. You also were a lead engineer, director of engineering, a number of different companies in the past as well. So I think you've done a little bit of everything, right? I've, I've touched on it all. I've done developer relations. I've done pre-sales engineering. I've, I've started out in just tech support at a company, uh, kind of progressed into software development from there, uh, from there progressed into, uh, um, like web development, just teaching myself a lot about APIs and how to build APIs. Most of my career has been backend systems, a lot of startups, uh, a lot of like tiny little seed stage kind of startups and, and kind of help them grow. And it's been great fun. Yeah. Oh, and, and you also um, have done some work with interviewing.io. I think it's probably a company mm-hmm. that a lot of people are familiar with um, yeah. if they, they've watched this show where I think you've been a, a an interviewer for a long time there, right? Probably I've been on their the- platform, yeah, about four and a half years now. And I just crossed my 1100th mock interview uh, that I've conducted on their site. So yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. I, I have a ton of respect for the team over there and what they're doing. Uh, it's a lot of fun being an interviewer there. Wow. Well, this will be episode 28, I think of the show. So I got, got some ways to go. <laughs> <laughs> You'll get there. I believe yeah. in you, Taylor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, I, can you share a little bit about your background and kind of your, your pathway into technology? I think you touched on this a little bit, right? Um, I kind of worked your way into it, but, but how'd you mm-hmm. get started? So my dad was a big gadget nut. Um, and he came home back in 1982 with a Commodore 64. And as a little like eight-year-old kid, I'm like, what's this thing all about? Um, and so there wasn't a lot to do. I grew up in Northern Canada, like way, way up North in Canada. Wasn't a lot to do in the wintertime, but play hockey or stay indoors. And so I spent a lot of time indoors, just going through the manual that came with it, which taught you everything about the basic programming language. And I remember as a kid thinking like, wait, so I can give this thing a list of instructions and it's always going to follow those instructions no matter what. Um, and so I taught myself a lot of basic programming and, you know, back then you could buy magazines with like pages and pages and pages of source code that you had to type in yourself. 
because uh, it wasn't very practical back then to to transmit software um, or certainly not like send out floppy disks or anything like that. Um, and so they would just publish these magazines with tons of source code and you'd sit there and code it all in, hope for something cool. And at the end of it, you know, as a kid, you're like, oh, it's a spreadsheet. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like you're hoping it's a game or you'd like, you know, play half of the game and then it switches over to the spreadsheet because you turn the wrong page and you're like typing in the wrong code or something. Um, and so it was, it was always really interesting as a, as a kid. And, and so I knew really early on, like whatever I do in life, I want to work with computers, um, and basically stuck with that all through high school. Although in high school, I started tinkering with like little electronic circuits and I still do. I got tons of raspberry Pis and Arduinos and, and stuff like that. Um, and I, I just got a board, uh, the other day that basically does cellular communication, uh, for IOT devices. So I'm looking forward to nerding out on that over the long weekend coming up. Um, and, and so I, I studied computer engineering, so it was, it was a good foundation of software development, but it was learning how to program to actually control hardware. And so skip ahead 20 years when IOT is really booming, it's like, oh, this is fun. I get to like control hardware again. And so my career started out in tech support at an operating system company in Ottawa, Canada. And, uh, from there I kind of progressed into like actually getting a firmware developer job. So working on really low level code, a lot of C and assembly back then. And then from there, just, okay, well, I want something where I can be creative. And so I got into, um, I got into like web development, teaching myself what we call kind of the traditional lamp stack of Linux, Apache, MySQL, and then some programming language starting in P, whether it was Perl, PHP, Python, so on. Um, and then just kind of progressing there through my career. <clears throat> and then, uh, I did, I ran my own web hosting business for a while. So I was actually racking my own servers. Um, I ran that with a couple of friends and then nice. that led into just being like an SRE, uh, where you're like taking care of a data center. I did DBA duties. So lots of DevOps background. And then, you know, meanwhile, also progressing as a software developer. So lots of, lots of involvement got into it like a lead architect role at SendGrid, had a lot of fun there working with the team and, and building out some really great APIs and then started progressing uh, down more of the management path and being more of a hiring manager and really focusing on hiring. And that's really what sparked in me of like, I want to be able to teach people about the hiring process and, mm. and why we ask the kinds of questions that we do and what's important for us to hear in your answers. And so I started putting together a lot of mentorship material to give out to some students at, at Turing, where I was a mentor at the time. So I mentored for them for a number of years. And then they called me up one day and they're like, do you want a job to teach over here? And I'm like, yeah, easiest job decision switch ever. Got into teaching for four years. And I'm like, okay, now I want to like get back into deeper engineering kinds of things or get back into developer relations work. And uh, so I'm just wrapping up a job hunt myself right now, hoping to make a, a job decision next week, actually, for uh, oh, my it's next exciting. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's been a lot of fun just going through interviews again myself and, and being able to live stream twice a week about like, hey, how's your job hunt going? Let me tell you about my job hunt, <laughs> like having to go through leak code problems and all that stuff. Like I've been, I've been coding for 25, almost 26 years professionally, but sure, I'll do your leak code problem. All yeah. right. <laughs> um, and, and how much not fun that is. But, you know, it's, it's a necessity in our industry right now to, to be able to practice that kind of stuff as, as much as it, it's not great. So, yeah, great. Well, uh, that's a really helpful kind of overview. I think the, um, stuck out. I, I, 
I grew up in Vermont, so I also spent some winters, you know, huddled behind a computer <laughs> that, uh, sure. doing something to it to just make that fan burn uh, as much as possible, right? Maybe get a little warmer. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Uh, I think mine was was torrenting stuff and and uh, downloading Skyrim mods and hoping they wouldn't, you know, absolutely brick the computers. <laughs> right. Now, nowadays, nowadays, I think people just mine Bitcoin to keep their uh, their house warm. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, great. Well, so can you share a little bit about how you landed your first engineering job? I think you said you'd, you'd, um, you'd always kind of been tinkering, right? Um, but, but when did you actually start first working professionally? It was, I've heard some people say, you know, while they were in high school, they started doing stuff on the side. Some people said, oh, I waited till I was after college, but what did that look like for you? Um, so it was after college. So my first job coming out of college, I, you know, studied to be a computer engineer, and the company that hired me was an operating system company. Uh, they make what they call a real-time operating system where you can, based on your CPU and your hardware specs, you can deterministically figure out how long each instruction is, is literally going to take as a slice of time. And so you can time things really, really tightly as, as far as tolerances. And, uh, and so I, I was working for them and, and they, the contract I signed and the agreement was you're going to work in tech support for two years. So you understand everything about everything that you do. And then we'll move you into an engineering role. And I lasted a little over a year. Uh, and, and it was really a lot of frequently asked questions where you're just on the phone or answering a fax or answering an email. Yeah. Back then we had fax, uh, fax support. Um, and, uh, and just answering the same questions over and over. And, and I got a little bored with that. I, I tried pre-sales engineering and I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed talking to customers, um, but I didn't want to wait another year to get into software development. And so my, sure. first, my first actual like full-time software job, I got through a friend of a friend. And so I've, I've been telling people ever since, like it's about the networking. You can go blind apply, but networking is what's going to find you a lot of opportunities and like asking people like, Hey, do you know anybody who's hiring? And for me, that's how it got, uh, got really kickstarted from there. Yeah, absolutely. I, I tell folks that all the time. Um, it's when I, so I worked at a coding boot camp in the past and it was mm -hmm. often the people who had an uncle or a brother or a cousin or somebody, you know, a sister who was already an engineer, at least worked in tech, right. Worked at a tech right, company. Right. Um, and those are the people that often got the jobs that fastest out of our bootcamp, even if, you know, the technical skills might've been exactly the same or even lower than, than other people in their same class, but they just knew someone who could at least get their resume in front of somebody. Right. Yeah. Um, this is the same thing for myself was it was someone I called who I'd worked with when I was a recruiter and I'd placed them in the past. And I just called them. They said, Oh, we have, if you know a little bit of you, we have a little bit of you work you can do. And I, all right, sure. <laughs> I'll start tomorrow. Right. Um, so that it really does get to the foot in the door. Yeah. Networking makes a big, big difference, especially today with, you know, hiring freezes and, and especially for entry level roles. Um, you know, a lot of companies like there's, there's this huge demand for software developers, but companies think they need senior level devs and they, they really don't like, they really should take a chance on, on entry level devs. Um, and so a lot of the people who come hang out on my stream are those entry level devs saying, how do I get my first job? And I always tell them like, do your company research, find people at those companies, reach out to them, talk to them, you know, um, but not just trivial, like, what do you do day to day, but also like diving into like, as you're doing your company research and finding out things about the company, if there's information about the company that you want to find out, but you can't find those make great questions to those people that you network with. Like, Hey, I can't find this information about your company. Do you have five minutes to talk about it? Mm -hmm. Like people are happy to get on a phone call. If you have 
very specific questions, especially if you can send them the questions ahead of time. Like, Hey, can we hop on a call? I, you know, I want to ask you these three things about your company. Like everybody's got time for a five minute phone call. Um, and if it's just something like, yeah, this, you know, here's the answer, here's the answer. It's like, cool. Can we stay in touch? Yeah, absolutely. You know, especially if you've got like specific questions you want to ask next time and not just like, you know, what do you do and what tech stack do you use? Like those, those questions get a little boring after a while, yeah. but if you come with like really interesting questions about, Hey, I'm curious about this aspect of your company, or I'm curious about how your company does X, Y, Z. Like, can you share some of that without breaking NDAs and then so on? Of course, I uh, got to respect those, but um, bringing specific questions like networking is so much easier. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's a great point. I think even from a technical perspective, if you can bring question as well, like just stuff you're, you're not all that familiar with. Um, I think that's mm-hmm. something that sometimes people are like, Oh, I, I'm not good at small talk. Or I don't know how to talk about those things. I don't, I don't think I'm very good at small talk, but if I, if I have a question, like if I go, I don't really know how binary search works. Do you right? Like I'm not going to necessarily ask that to some random person, but if I'm trying to network with people and that's something that's top of mind, someone probably knows in this group. Right. So sure. if, if I have nothing else to talk about, maybe I ask that question. Right. And someone's going to go, Oh yeah, I can explain that to you. Great. Well, there's, that's a much better conversation I'm probably going to have than, Oh, what does your company do? Right. And like just right. hoping for the best. Right? Yeah, for sure. So I know uh, you mentioned um, that you've been interviewing, you're hoping to, to sign an offer here uh, soon. So this is it's very exciting. So you've done yeah. technical interviews um, recently. I'm assuming you've probably done the gauntlet. Yeah. So I started, I started my most recent job hunt back in November. Um, I left that job in December, partly to interview. I was expecting a few offers from some interviews that I had done. And, uh, unfortunately one of them, I got rejected cause I messed up their, their interview process. Uh, one of them ended up with a hiring freeze. And then the third one I got, uh, I was actually, uh, interviewing at Amazon and got rejected from them. Uh, but it was, it was for like an AWS certification instructor role. So it would have gotten me back into teaching. Um, and I made it all the way through like what they call their, uh, uh, leadership principles interviews, which is like five grueling hours of behavioral questions. And, uh, apparently if you make it to that, it means you've got all the technical knowledge, but you know, these five hours of, of culture interviews are basically like, are you, are you a good fit for Amazon? And apparently I wasn't a good fit and that's okay because since getting rejected for that job, I'm like, you know what, I'm just going to kick back and enjoy the holidays with my wife and kids. And, uh, so it was, it was a nice stress-free kind of holiday season, uh, until the, those fires came through Colorado cause they came, uh, within a couple of miles of our house. But oh, aside geez. from that, it was, it was pretty, uh, pretty low key. We got up in the mountains for a little while and, uh, you know, just relaxed as a family, worked on some jigsaw puzzles and caught up on podcasts and, and stuff like that. And then I'm like, all right, now I got to get back into the job hunt. And so, you know, looking for jobs to apply uh, for and going through their interview process. And some of them are like, Hey, we've got like, you know, your, your background really fits. Here's this eight hour process. We want you to jump through. And I'm like, how about no. Um, and, and some of that does come with a healthy dose of privilege of, you know, being in, you know, this much experience in tech that I can turn down a, a position like that. Some I walked away from because as I would do my research on the company, I would realize like, Hey, like your team is all male or your leadership of the whole company is all white. I'm a white dude in tech. I've been around enough white dudes in tech. I've been around enough white people leading companies. Like, could we please have something different? Like, please, 
like it's 2021, 2022, like where's the diversity you mm -hmm. say you want diversity, but in practice, when I look at your team page, like you're not showing it. Um, and so I actually walked away from a few interviews. I had one, uh, recruiter reach back out to me and, uh, uh, she, she left a little note she's like, I really appreciate that message that you sent to my boss. I'm like, good. I hope it changes something, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, uh, you know, diversity in tech is, is really important to me. Um, and so I have all kinds of people on my stream as well that come from diverse backgrounds to talk about their perspectives. So it's not just me saying like, Hey, as a hiring manager, these are the questions I ask, or this is how I would respond in this kind of scenario, both as an applicant or as a hiring manager, like sharing my perspective is one thing, but I love using my stream to give other people a voice as well. Mm. Um, and so tit for tat, I want you on my stream at some point. Um, but, but just to have uh, other voices and, and hear other people's perspectives, I think no matter who you listen to, um, that's not enough. You need to listen to lots of opinions and sort of form your own, whether it's how to build a resume. I've got ideas. You'll have ideas. If someone listens to just me and you end up getting the resume, you're going to think the resume is garbage. If they just listen to you and they send me the resume, I'm going to think it's garbage. Um, or there's going to be things about it that just seem a little off because everyone's going to have their own opinion. And so the more opinions you listen to, the more you can say, okay, this is how I want to build my resume. And then that's your resume. You own it. You you've come to that decision because of multiple opinions. Um, so yeah, don't ever listen to just one person. Um, that's, that's a big thing that I push on my stream a lot. Yeah. That, that's fantastic. Did you have, as you've been interviewing, has there been different types of roles or are you locked in on, you know, one thing, or, or I'm sure you probably get reached out to about developer relations, probably sales architecture, instruction focused things, and then just the whole slew of general developer to developer manager, director, those types of roles, right? Are you locked in on one thing or has it kind of been, oh, let's see if the company's interesting <laughs> kind of feeling, feeling things out? That's a, that's a great question. I actually had, um, someone on Twitter look at my LinkedIn. Um, and they're like, yeah, like what kind of job are you looking for? Because my LinkedIn has every job I've ever done. Sure. So any recruiter looking at my LinkedIn, they're like, what do you want to be when you grow up? It's like, I don't know either. Um, because I've got management experience, I've got engineering experience, I've got developer relations experience, I've got teaching experience. And so people are like, how do, how do we utilize that? Um, and, and so some of the roles that I've been applying for are just management roles or just developer relations roles. I did some engineering interviews as well for just an engineering role, but then you kind of get the hybrid of like, Hey, we want you to manage a DevRel team, or we want you to be a director over like director experience kind of thing, which is a component of education and DevRel, or, you know, we want you to just be like a lead DevRel to kind of like focus on one area of our product, you know, that sort of thing. Um, I have had a, a few people reach out like, Hey, would you come and teach? And I'm like, well, maybe as a consultant kind of level, but I'm not looking for like that full time, like go back to a school to teach. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm okay with it, but I like to focus on like deeper engineering things, which kind of drew me more into like the developer relations side where I can teach like different concepts of different companies and, and sort of share that and, and see that reach and, and do a lot of like the, the product education uh, type of thing. So that's, that's really the kind of thing I've been focusing on in, in the job hunt and most of the job offers that I've got um, or waiting on are DevRel 
which is like going giving conference talks or some sort of advocacy or live streaming or uh, you know putting together workshops and hackathons and things like that because I, I like I like public speaking uh, although it's all virtual right now um, but uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to the day that we can hop back on an airplane and go to a tech conference and just nerd out with fellow nerds and uh, you know geek out over over deeper things. Yeah, you, you touched on it a little bit. Can you just share for people who might not know what what um, developer relations roles actually look like? Because I think it's something that has grown quite a bit that I've seen over the last five years. It's whole like I started maybe tech evangelist, dev, developer evangelist, then kind of developer relations, and it feels like a at least when I first heard about, it, I was like, oh, is this marketing or is this engineering or some combination of the two? Right. So, could you just share a little bit of insight into what those roles actually look like? Yeah, I think I think DevRel is a little bit like DevOps. It means different things to different companies. Yeah. For some companies, it's all about, okay, you're going to go educate people about our company and about our product. And that's all it is, is it's product education. Um, for others, it's more of the thought leadership and you happen to work for our company. And so you're kind of like, you know, uh, hey, I've got a cool idea for some serverless project. And as part of that, I'm going to show you how I use such and such a product where I happen to work, but this is a talk about like serverless, or this is a talk mm -hmm. about, you know, internet of things, but it's going to push data to, you know, such and such a cloud offering because I happen to work there. And so we can see what happens on a dashboard or something like that. Um, and so um, every company treats it a little bit differently. Some DevRel teams are just really focused on content, whether it's written content, video content, streaming content, um, and then whether it's like live video or, you know, pre-recorded video and webinars or tech talks, or whether you're actually going to a technical conference and speaking in front of crowds, uh, building events, uh, you know, where people can come and just like, it's a day long event or a multi-day event, like a workshop, or you're going to run like a hackathon over a weekend and you just have tons of people show up and just kind of nerd out on, on whatever your product is or mishmash a whole bunch of APIs. I remember going to some DevRel events in the past where it was a whole bunch of API based companies and they would just get together and it's like, here's our API, here's our API, here's our API go build something cool. We're going to judge them at the end and we're going to give away like $10,000 worth of prizes. Um, and, and, you know, people will just figure out how to mash things up and, and come up with really cool product ideas. But DevRel means a lot of things. Um, and in the DevRel community, we kind of focus on what we call the three C's, which is content, community, and code. Mm -hmm. And so the community aspect is like, how do we take care of the people that, are, that need to learn that we want to kind of raise up and, and make better? Uh, the content is, you know, is it product content? Is it just thought leadership content? And then the associated code with that, is there an example app that we're working on or some sort of sample of, um, you know, some little snippet of code to kind of get you started with some kind of aspect of our product or just the thought leadership that we're doing. Um, and so those tend to be like the top three things that we really focus on in DevRel. That's really helpful. I think it's a, it's an interesting space that, it, probably a lot of people that come from bootcamp backgrounds as well, or non-traditional engineering backgrounds, if you have some experience in some area that might might um, lean towards that is something that I've seen uh, people mm -hmm. be interested in, right? If you come from sales or you come from marketing and now you're an engineer, a couple of years mm -hmm. in, you go, oh, this might make a lot of sense, right? If you, if you still like that, that um, yeah. you know, people-focused side of things instead of just being, you know, keyboard-focused all day, right? Yeah, and and there are really two aspects to DevRel. Like there's, there's the aspect of 
people that like to be in front of people and people that just want to help people. And so sure. if, if you've done like a pre-sales engineering where you're okay being on a phone call, um, but that's like the, the limit of your capacity of like dealing with other people, then you might be drawn more to the content side of DevRel. If you're really outgoing and really extroverted and you love getting on stage and giving a talk, um, or even if, even if you're not extroverted, but you're, you've got a lot of knowledge in something and you're willing to go get a talk, then maybe more of the community side of DevRel uh, could be for you. Um, but yeah, there, because it's, it's such a wide variety of what does DevRel mean to a company? Um, you know, there's a lot of opportunity out there for sure. Yeah. Interesting. Great. Well, back to the, the interviewing side of things, when right. you're typically evaluating, uh, or I guess, what are you typically evaluating for when you're um, interviewing someone for your team or teams you've built in the past? Good question. There's, there's certainly the aspect of you need to have some amount of technical skill to join the team. And so uh, that varies a lot based on your level. If you're coming in at an entry level, I'm going to expect more about your process and your communication, how well you can learn where a more senior person I'm going to be looking for. How do you optimize your code? How do you make your code faster? How do you make it better? Um, or, you know, some aspect of that, but also how well do you explain why you're doing what you're doing? Because as I hire a senior dev, I'm not just hiring you to write really awesome code or to optimize other code. I also want you to raise up everybody else to get to where you are. And you're going to do that most effectively by explaining the how and the why. And so as I interview a more senior dev, I'm hoping to hear more of like, okay, well, this is what I'm going to do, but this is why I'm doing it this way. Um, whereas an entry level dev or someone earlier in their career, I might focus more on what's your process? How well are you communicating it? Um, do you even have a process to follow? And then what's your communication skill like? And if I throw a little nugget at you, how quickly do you kind of learn and apply that? Um, and that could be, you know, hey, for part of this take-home assignment, like I want you to build this, you're, you know, based on your experience, you might have to go learn this extra aspect, but let's see what you can do. And then I'll evaluate that when it comes in and go, hey, look what they learned. Look how they were able to apply it in a short amount of time. That shows me that they're going to be a great employee where they're willing to take that initiative and dive in and, and be happy to learn something. Um, some people are a little more opposed to like the learning aspect. They get pretty locked in on this is what I've learned. This is what I know. And this is what I want to do, uh, where I'm looking for people who tend to, uh, not tend to, but are willing to sort of transfer that knowledge into other areas. So if you're coming out of a boot camp where you only studied full stack JavaScript, that's fine. If I've got like a backend role in Python, you're going to be able to transfer that knowledge, but are you willing to? Yeah. Um, that, that, makes, that makes a big difference for me as a hiring manager. And so I might put some feelers out there of like, you know, where, where are your interests taking you? What do you want to be doing, you know, six months from now, a year from now, a couple of years from now? And some people don't know, and that's okay too. Uh, especially when you're early in your career, your first job doesn't have to be your dream job. Your first job doesn't have to be an amazing job, but it, it's at least letting you make progress in your career. Um, there's a, a quote that I heard from a guy. Um, I've, I follow some of his stuff on Instagram, but sometimes he's, he's a little extreme in his thinking. His name is Jordan Peterson. Hmm. And he talks about uh, like helping college grads figure out what they want to do. And they get so paralyzed by, you know, I'm, I'm here right now 
and I don't want to move forward because I don't know what I want to do. And he's like, just take a chance and at least move forward. Because then even if you realize that's not what you want to do, you're in a different position and you can see the world from a different perspective. But if you only stay where you are and, and say, well, I could go this way, I could go this way, I could go this way you're not going to get a different perspective until you actually make a move and make a journey in some direction. And then from there, now you can say, okay, well, I tried that for six months or a year. Turns out I don't want to do that. I'm going to go focus on this and I'm going to pivot my career a little bit. That's okay to do, especially early in your career. Um, how you tell that story is also an important part of the interview process when it comes to, you know, why were you only at that job for six months or eight months or a year? And then, you know, you changed, you know, several times. It's like, well, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And now I've got that kind of locked in and your company's doing that. And that's why I want to apply for this job. We're in charge of telling that story when we go to an interview. And so even if you don't know what you want to do, being able to explain the journey that you've taken and where you're going with that journey is sometimes enough to kind of win them over. So those are, those are the kinds of things I listen for when I'm interviewing someone. Yeah, that, that those are great points. I, I think, I think about that idea a lot about kind of taking the the leap. Um, it was something that I thought about when I basically any, any big career move I had to make, like when I went from being a individual contributor recruiter to a manager, and then from a manager running an office, they were all things that I went, this is terrifying. Right. And I don't really know how to do this at all, but but what was always in the back of my head was, well, if everything goes wrong and I'm terrible at this, I could always go back to being a, a recruiter again, right? Like but the worst yeah. case scenario is I'm just a senior Something recruiter again. Right. Uh, that's okay, right? And kind of thought the same thing, you know, moving engineering roles from my first job into this one, which was like, it certainly seems like it's going to be more difficult, but I was like, oh, worst case scenario, I could probably call my old company. They might hire me back. If not, I could probably find another job that was pretty similar, right? Yeah. Um, so it, it does... Feel like if you take the leap, you can usually, uh, obviously there's a lot of privilege when I say this, but you could probably find a way to get back into a similar role, right? Mm -hmm. um, if if everything goes terribly wrong, right? So. Well, that, that brings up two interesting points that I'd, I'd like to touch on. The first one being some people are getting out of that job because they don't want to do that anymore. Um, like, you know, working at Turing, you know, for four years, we got a lot of people coming in going, I didn't want to do sales anymore. I didn't want to work in the medical field anymore. I didn't want to do this or that anymore. I want to be a developer. And, and so they really struggle for what kind of job do I go get? Mm -hmm. Because I don't want to have to fall back on that if I can help it. That's why I came to a boot camp. That's why I'm paying this money for this new education. On the flip side of that, though, my second point is sometimes that's the easiest way back into tech is to kind of lean into an industry where you've been in the past. And so if you've done, you know, let's say uh, you worked in medical systems in the past, well, now as a developer, like that's going to be a really easy entry point for you to get back in as a developer to go work for a medical company, but now as a developer, because you understand the user experience, you understand the pain points they had having used those kinds of systems and software and what was good about it, what was bad about it. Well, now you can take that as part of your intro story of why do you want to work here? It's like, I used to use these kinds of systems. They're garbage. I want to make that better. And here's how I've been improving myself so I can come and make an impact and make that a really good user experience for the next people that have to use that product. 
Now, obviously you wouldn't go to a company and tell them their company or their product is garbage, but you, you get what I'm saying. Sometimes that's an easier path into that first job by relying on something that you've previously done. Not always. Like if you're coming from food service, you know, you can't, you can't exactly like just jump into tech, but maybe the parent company that owned that restaurant or the parent company that owns that parent company that owns the restaurant, like maybe they're hiring for like the point of sale system or the little menu things that you get on the tables nowadays, the little digital menus. Like there's some aspect in there that you could probably find an easier way, an easier path back into tech by going back to the kind of company where you've worked in the past. But if you're absolutely opposed of, you know, for some reason, it's like, no, I had to get out of that for reasons. Um, that's okay too. But being able to explain that story as part of the interview process is, is very likely going to get you that first job, uh, much easier, especially with the networking component that we talked about. Yeah, absolutely. And even things that are kind of adjacent to that industry that you might've come in, like I, I work at levels at FYI right now, and it, it, we are involved in compensation data, right? And basically salary comparison, which is not directly related to recruiting, but it is close enough that like, I have a lot of knowledge about this energy that's certainly helpful, but it allowed me to not work, go work for, you know, greenhouse or some, some direct recruiting right. related tech company. I mean, that's actually been great. Cause I, I think I was a little burnt out on recruiting as a whole, right? But having this knowledge is certainly helpful. At least I know what we're talking about versus I was doing like insurance consulting before insurance tech stuff and like a lot of stuff that just was totally over my head, which then I had to like just play that much more catch up to try to figure it out, right? Right. Do you have any type of standardized system that you use whenever you're, you're interviewing or doing technicals or does it kind of change depending on the, the role or the person? Um, it, it would change on the role, but not necessarily on the person. Um, typically I would do a four point scale across like multiple sort of components. And so as a hiring manager, I would have a rubric that I would share with my team or, you know, when I was part of the hiring team, we, we sort of developed a four point rubric. Um, and, and the reason we use an even number is so there's no middle ground. And so it would be like strong. Yes. Weak. Yes. Weak. No strong. No, but there's no middle ground. There's no, maybe, it's like, well, did they answer it or not? And if they answered it, did they answer well? Or was it like, yeah, it was okay. Or it was like, no, nah, it was a little bit inaccurate. Or no, it was like grossly wrong. Um, or they just didn't have an answer at all. And so by having an even number, it's not just a, a binary yes, no, but you can also add like a little bit of strength to it of like, yeah, it was an amazing answer. Or like, yeah, they, they understood enough or nah, there were enough inaccuracies that, you know, maybe they're a little shaky on that subject versus like, no, it was like totally wrong or they just didn't have an answer. And, and it brings up an important point too, that you don't have to have all of the answers when you go into an interview, you don't have to be an expert in everything. My job as the interviewer is to gauge what you know and what you don't know. Um, and it's okay not to have all the answers. It's okay not to be an expert in things, uh, especially early in your career. We know that you don't know all the things, but we do have to figure out the depth of your knowledge and then your, the breadth of your knowledge of like, how many things do you know? And then how well do you know those things? That's how I think about with or breadth and, and depth. Um, but you don't have to be an expert, but I do have to test your limits. And so I might ask a couple of questions even if it feels like, oh, I already kind of said I didn't know that thing. Why are you still asking me these questions? It's like, well, you know, maybe I'm just looking at it from a slightly different angle or see if I can jog your memory or something like that on something that I think you might have learned and you've just forgotten. Um, that's really my job as an interviewer. 
And so that rubric wouldn't change, but you know, based on the role, like an entry level role, my questions would be a little different. Uh, more senior roles would go like much more into technical detail where again, like I, I mentioned earlier uh, in another question, like um, for, for an entry level or, or early career person, it might be more about your process and your communication. And so I would look at, you know, communication skills, coding skills, problem solving, just generally speaking, and then like behavioral questions or like what sorts of scenarios have you been a part of? What do you have experience with as far as working with other people, working on a team, things like that? Have you done group projects or has it all been solo projects? Uh, you know, things like that, that would fall kind of more into the behavioral category. Um, but then being able to talk about like, just, Hey, how does HTTP work? You know, like when I type in an address in a browser and I hit enter, what happens, how much of that can you speak to? Can you talk about DNS? Can you talk about what's actually in the HTTP request and response itself? Um, how do cookies get transmitted back and forth? What actually happens on the back end if you're a back end developer or if you're on the front end, once you get that payload of content, what's your browser actually doing with that? Like, how does your browser actually parse that and put it together? When does JavaScript actually run when it gets that payload of data? Um, you know, like, so, so when, when you're answering that question of how does the internet work, that's, that's the backbone of everything we do as web developers. And so we should have a pretty well-prepared answer for that but you don't have to be an expert in each component of those mm -hmm. things, but you should at least be able to describe like your focus. So if you're a front end developer, you should know how the browser works, not deep, intricate detail, but you should have some idea of like, you know, it gets that initial HTML payload and it'll start parsing out. It'll figure out what other resources it needs. And then like multi-thread to go back and fetch those. Um, it'll, start to like render out the content. But once those styles load, it'll go back and restyle kind of on the fly. If it sees JavaScript in the body, it's going to run that now. Otherwise, you know, if it's on like a document ready event, it'll wait for that everything else to load and render. And then it fires that event. And now it's going to like maybe go run some Ajax, like being able to describe those sorts of components um, as a front end developer, we're a back end developer. You better tell me everything that's going on in your framework. Like, how does it even get the request? How does it parse it? How does it get content out of the database? Like, tell me everything about how it's taking in the request and building that response. If you're full stack, you should be able to touch a little bit on both. But again, I wouldn't expect really deep technical knowledge until you've progressed in your career and, and you have sort of exposed yourself to more of that. I'm going to take that. 30 second clip of you explaining what the internet is on the front end and just replay that before any interview. <laughs> so I haven't answered that question now. <laughs> it's, it's, it's fun because I, I've actually been asked that question several times over my recent interviews. It's like, okay, well, if I type in this address, you know, what can you tell me? I'm like, how much information do you want to know? And they're like, go as sure. deep as you can. I'm like, all right, well, the browser's going to ask your operating system, have we ever been to this site before? Have we cached the IP? And if not, it's going to go do a DNS lookup on port 53. And you, you know, you see people like, okay, I, I didn't mean like that level of depth. Yeah, yeah. Like I actually had one person stop and go, okay, fine. Like that's okay. And I'm like, you know, I taught this stuff for four years. Like it's pretty fresh in my mind. Plus yeah. I've been using this for, you know, a couple of decades. So, you know, I'm not going to be an expert at every component, but how deep do you want me to go on any particular part? Cause I can, I can dive in for sure. Yeah. I find those types of, or at least that, that, that exact question kind of frustrating when I'm in interviews, mostly because I feel like from a early career perspective, 
like I think about that from time to time, but only the most practical or, or functional, I'm trying to think of the right word um, for it, the pieces of that, that actually impact. Like if I'm trying to yeah. do some front-end work and make changes to a page, I don't think about really any of that, right? Unless something sure. goes wrong and I'm like, I have to see what the actual, like what I'm actually receiving or what the actual network, like I'm clicking one little tab though, just to make sure I'm when I'm troubleshooting something, right? Um, so those types of questions, I'm always trying to like balance my head. Like, how important is that for me? To, to go and learn because it doesn't feel like something I'm going to pick up in my day-to-day -day necessarily, or maybe little bits and no, pieces, right. Versus like, you know, that's just good knowledge to have because it is something that I am doing every day and it probably would be useful if I had it. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and, and I think you kind of nailed it. Like what's the practical portion of this that I deal with day-to-day? -day? Like that's, that's really what you can sort of get across in the interview of like, you know, I like I've, I've studied this, but this is the part where I focused like most of my attention. Like how is the browser actually like rendering the stuff out after the fact, or how's the JavaScript engine, like actually parsing through, you know, data or whatever. Um, but I think, I think especially if you're coming straight out of school, they're probably asking you that question just to see, you know, what did your school teach you or boot camp or whatever? Um, or like how much of that theory do you even understand? Like I said, it is kind of the backbone of what we do in web development. And so, you know, it, it, at the same time, it does kind of tip on the, you know, are you just asking like for trivia based knowledge? Because there's also pros and cons to that in interviews of like, is that really helpful to know? But, you know, if, if there are components about the job where you need to understand like the amount of data that you're transmitting or receiving from a user, and, you know, you're using that to like rate limit people or something like that for like deeper API integration, then yeah, being able to understand, you know, how things actually transmit and, and, and so on does make a big difference about, you know, do you, does, does your browser, your client software support like gzip compression? So we're reducing the amount of traffic that we're actually sending, or do you support HTTP two where instead of, you know, making an HTTP or making a TCP IP connection to the server, getting one resource and then closing that connection and reopening the connection, asking for the next resource and closing that connection. Or do you support HTTP two where I can hold that connection open and just request a whole bunch of resources and then close that connection because that speeds things up. Or I can just send over a list of all the resources and you just stream them all back to me. Like having a deeper understanding of that, I think comes with time and it comes with, okay, well, as a senior level dev, I'm going to model more for that latter stage because I'm going to care more about internet traffic and data payloads mm -hmm. and things like that. And so a lot of it is just what have you been experienced uh, or exposed to in your career? Um, and there, there are like technical challenges where I might expect, uh, you know, I might, I might give a, like a part of a problem just to hear about like, what have you done as far as optimizing code or, you know, caching or something like that? Like, do you like, have, has that even been part of your experience? If not, that's okay. But if you do, especially earlier in your career, that can make a big difference in a, in an interview of like, Oh, wow, you've actually been around a lot more. I've actually raised people up in their, in their uh, interviews where it's like, oh, well, Taylor's like kind of that intermediate level. But in that interview, I'm like, dang, Taylor's actually got some senior level experience based on some of this. And I actually brought someone in at a senior level, even though they, they really had like intermediate years of experience. Mm -hmm. But what they had done in those years was senior level. So I, I fought, I advocated for them. I'm like, no, we need to give them a senior title. We're going to bring them in at this pay range. 
Um, and my VP of engineering fought back and like, no, they don't have the years of experience. I'm like, it's not about the years of experience. It's the experience in the years. It's that old cliche. I'm like the work that they have done justifies it in this case. Mm. Trust me. They brought them in at a senior level and they flourished and they did amazing. Um, and, and, you know, at the same time, it, it, it can sometimes raise the anxiety of that person a little bit too, of like, I thought I was coming in at an intermediate level. Now you have senior level expectations, but if you've had that experience, like, why not? Yeah. You know, like if, like we're showing you as a company, we believe in you. If we're going to bring you in at that level, that means you've passed our standard. We believe you can do that job. Um, and so, yeah, it might raise your anxiety, but hopefully we're building up that trust as a company to support you and say like, whatever level we bring you in at, we believe you can do the job at that level. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, it happens the same way if you have to like sort of downgrade someone's experience as well of like, yeah, you know, you applied for that senior role. We're going to bring you in an intermediate because you're missing, you know, certain things. Sometimes though we, we can't give that feedback, but, um, but that's usually what's happening is, is we recognize like, oh, just not quite enough of your experience mm. matches, you know, sort of this rubric that we're looking for, for that more senior level, whether from junior to intermediate, or intermediate to senior and onward. Um, and that's why we need to bring you down a level that happens too in recruiting. I'm sure you've been there as a recruiter of like having to adjust people either way. It's like, you know what, you really wowed us. We're going to bring you up or it's like, eh, you're missing a few things. We're going to bring you down. And then hopefully, you know, you keep the candidate around when you do that. So. Sure. I, I, if, if I saw that too much with a company, I used to try to get them like, can we change the level? <laughs> like if every person yeah. we send to a lead ends up in a senior role, except for one, are we, like, are we really looking for a lead or are we looking for like an architect or something, right? Like what's, right. what is this role actually for, right? But for sure. uh, I am curious, how do you think uh, you do a technical interviews? I mean, I guess there's kind of both perspectives, you know, as an interviewer or as a candidate, right? Um, but but yeah. you've been on both sides a lot, right? And recently, so. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess I'm doing okay on, on the candidate side because I've got multiple offers to juggle right now. Um it's definitely nerve wracking though, as a candidate, like having to go through these things, especially with, you know, more than two decades of experience and you're still expected to jump through leak code challenges. Um, but the, the DevRel interview, uh, experience is, is quite different from like a full software engineer type of experience. There, there's still some aspect of, of coding, but it's a lot more like, Hey, can you put together a little technical talk, uh, where there's coding involved, but you know, it's not like, here's a lead code problem, you know, jump through a hoop. Um, but you know, as an interviewer, I think the, the biggest thing that I realized is not a lot of companies train their interviewers. Mm. They're just like, Hey, yeah. Taylor, I got someone coming in at one. Can you go find a problem to give them? Or here's like a bank of questions, just, you know, go see how they do. And that's it. That's all you get. And, you know, it's like, well, do I come out and just give you a gut check of like, yeah, I think they're going to be okay or no, like something seemed off or like, you know, a lot of companies don't train their interviewers. And so that's, that's kind of a big game changer for me is making sure that when I was in a position of management or leadership of making sure that everyone else on the team understood what the interview process was going to be. Um, and then like really helping train up other people to understand what kinds of questions to ask and why, what kinds of questions you're not allowed to ask and why. Um, one interview I remember being at, it was, it was a great interview. I was doing really well technically. And, uh, it was a, it was a founder of a startup and they had brought in one of their other, uh, developers 
And uh, the other developer at the end is like, all right, well, now we got to get to the real important question. Are you an ale guy or a lager guy? And the founder's like, dude, you can't ask that question. He like flipped out on him in the interviews. Like, like you can't ask that it's illegal. You can't ask about alcohol consumption and blah, blah, blah. Like, Oh really? But, I mean, I it's, it's, it. yeah, no, you're not allowed to ask those kinds of questions, but this interviewer had no idea, you know, but at the same time, it was, it was kind of a culture check because it's startup land, you know, early engineer, you've always got like a kegerator or some sort of beer fridge going on, whatever. I'm not a big drinker. Um, at least not anymore, but it like for me as a candidate, I kind of laughed it off. I'm like, yeah, whatever. You know, I like, I prefer lagers over ales, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, there's questions you're not allowed to ask. And so preparing an interviewer for like, these are the kinds of questions that you should ask. These are the kinds of questions you absolutely cannot ask. Um, and, and topics to avoid, like, don't talk about their kids. If you see a wedding band, don't ask about, you know, are they married? Uh, you know, how long they've been married, like not allowed to ask that stuff. It's, it's illegal in a lot of places. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and where it's not illegal, it probably should be. Uh, you're not allowed to ask about like religious backgrounds, alcohol consumption, even like casual drug use, you know, in, in states where it's legal, like you're not allowed to ask those kinds of things. Um, and, and so as, as a manager, I would always make sure that my teams were at least somewhat adequately prepared to like go into an interview and understand how to interview and why, um, as a candidate though, it's really easy now for me to spot people that have actually been experienced interviewers. Um, that have been doing it for a while, even, even, you know, a year, year and a half of like, oh, okay, you're actually really good at asking these questions and, and coming up with follow-up questions where it doesn't just sound like a scripted, let me ask you this. Now, let me ask you this. Now, let me ask you this. But when you can answer a question and, and they're like, okay, wait, tell me more about this aspect. And, and, and you can tell they're going off script. Then it's like, all right, cool. You're a good interviewer. If you can go off script and then kind of bring it back and, and sort of, you know, kind of like we're doing here, um, you know, you can kind of bring the, the topic back to center, but you're willing to go off topic for a minute, yeah. just, you know, to give you that deeper knowledge about the, about the person. So um, understanding how and when and why to do those things and then sort of how to gauge their answers and, and come up with some sort of score about it. it doesn't have to be a strict like oh well taylor got the job because he got 82 percent ian doesn't get the job because he only got 81 percent. so we have to hire taylor because he got a higher score it's like well no there are other factors in there as well but you know having having a way to treat everybody fairly uh, i'm a big believer and big fan in like equality and equity when it comes to those things you need to treat everybody fairly you need to score everybody the same so that everybody has an equal chance and equal um I know equal opportunity sounds weird, but like everybody has the same opportunity to come and join your team. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the best way to do that is to have a fair process where you're treating everybody fairly. You're screening everybody the same way. You're asking the same kinds of questions. Um, and I'm not asking you a particularly hard question because you have a CS degree and I'm not asking a boot camp grad like a really easy question because I know they don't have a CS background. Like that's already tipping the the bias, yeah. um, you know, based on their education backgrounds. Like, well, just, you know, my, my technical challenge should be in line with what my company does. And so I should be asking everybody the same kind of question, maybe not the exact same question, but it needs to be a similar enough question, similar level that we get a really good sense of how do people sort of rate against each other and then make a decision as a team from there. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of the, the rubric and, and I, I had a rubric and I was building a recruiting office and I was, 
I don't know. It was very different than every other recruiting office I'd ever worked at. You know, it was the gut check, right? Where you go in mm-hmm. and you talk to someone for a half hour and then, you know, you come out and someone goes, so what do you think? And you go, oh, good. Yeah, we should hire. Or, uh, I don't know. <laughs> right. That was about the extent of the, you know, if, if more people than not said, ah, good. <laughs> they got, they got an offer. Right. Um, I think just having at least something that you can point to, right. And I, you mentioned this earlier, like a, a four point system too, I think is so important. Um, or at least something where there's no middle ground. Cause otherwise a lot right. of people end up in that maybe spot right yeah. we're like mm-hmm. what do you feel yeah they might be a good fit right it's like what does that mean yeah is that a yes or a no like yeah right. we we actually got to a point where we would kind of score those things but then we would all kind of like debrief at the end and say uh like we would ask questions like should we hire this person like just overall like yes or no what do people think would anybody be disappointed if we mm-hmm. don't hire this person Um, because maybe someone's like, I really want that person, you know, to be part of my team or, you know, whatever. And then we would ask, okay, well, if we're going to hire this person, who wants them on their team and kind of get a check from there. So like, uh, at one company I was at, this person came in and interviewed and they were the smartest person in the room above all of us. Like they blew us all away with how well they could break a problem down, how well they coded their technical challenges, the behavioral scenarios that they'd been in, like they crushed everything about this interview and at the end of it we're debriefing and we're like should we hire this person everyone's like they're brilliant and we got to the stage of like who wants them on their team not a single person said yes it's like okay well let's talk about that let's go around the room let's find out like why doesn't anybody want them on their team and the consensus was is they they were kind of arrogant about it like they knew they were the smartest person there and and they weren't very humble about it and that was one of our, one of our main things, uh, criteria for, for culture. Um, it was at SendGrid and we had what we call our four H's. It was happy, hungry, honest, and humble. Mm. And they drastically failed on the humility side of like, they came in and they're like, oh, I'm the greatest gift, you know, to programming. And, and they just came across like kind of that, uh, okay, you're smart, but I don't want to work with you. And so we didn't make them an offer and it, and like the candidate got kind of ticked off. They're like, why I did really well. It's like, yeah, but nobody wants you on the team. I mean, we can't, we can't tell them that. Um, but we basically said like, yeah, you're not going to be a good culture fit. Um, and you know, we just had to leave it at that. We couldn't give them any more feedback beyond that because you know, that's, that's when it starts feeling discriminatory and, and whatever. And that's the, that's the reason that some companies don't want to give that sort of yeah. feedback because you, you can give some amount of feedback of like, yeah, you know, it just wasn't a culture fit or, you know, you were lacking enough of on the technical skill that, you know, if we, if we demote your role, like, would you still take it? Um, but if it's something cultural where just people don't want to work with you, I would rather save my team the anguish of, Hey, we're going to hire this person and no one on the team wants to work with you. And I start losing other people on the team Mm. because of that. I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that to my team. You know, my job, especially in management is to take care of my team and to remove blockers. I'm not going to introduce a blocker by bringing someone on the team that nobody wants to work with. Yeah. They'd have to be able to do the work of, you know, them plus all the other people who might leave because of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. seems like that's going to be a rare. And and I mean, they they might've been smart enough to do it, but I didn't want to take that chance. Sure. Yeah. So can you repeat those two questions? Cause those are, I mean, that's the exact type of stuff that I think people are looking for. It's, does anyone anyone want this person on this team? Is anyone going to be disappointed if we don't hire them? 
those two yeah, questions. Those, those are the main ones. So like the, the first one is we kind of go around, we kind of gather everybody's rubric scores and then, you know, not, not very strictly, you know, match up. Okay. Well, this person got like 82% or something, mm-hmm. but it was enough of like, you know, were there enough like weak? Yes. Strong. Yes. Sort of scenarios. Were there any like drastic, like strong nose that anybody got? So we would kind of like dive in on some of the, some of the rubric a little bit. And then from there, we would kind of just kind of say like, Hey, as a team, should we hire this person? So that was number one, like, you know, should we hire this person? Is, is it going to be a good technology fit on the team? Yes or no. And then we would kind of get a, a consensus there and then say, and then we would ask those other two questions of, would anybody be disappointed if we did not hire this person? And then, and, and with this one person, uh, like no one was, would have been disappointed if we did not hire them. And then the more important one is, you know, who wants them on their team? Because we had several different uh, people from across different teams interviewing them partially to, to get rid of bias and do like culture checks against one another. Um, And, and so like who wants them on their team? And then we would, then we would get those people together and say, okay, if we make them an offer, like what were their uh, technological strengths? where do we see them fitting in the best as far as like a team match and, and technology match mm-hmm. and as well as giving them opportunity to grow. Um, because I think, I think if you take a job where you have a hundred percent of the skill and no growth, you're going to get bored at that job and leave. Yeah. But if I can hire you where you've got like 75% of the skill and 25%, like where you're going to grow, you're more likely to stay because you know, you're going to get engaged and, and like on that, on that learning level. Um, and especially if you see that us as a company, we're willing to invest in you to help you grow in those areas. Um, it can sometimes, uh, spark a little bit of loyalty and, and you're more likely to stick around. Um, so those, those are like the three questions of, should we hire them? And then from there, would anybody be disappointed if we don't? And then who wants them on their team? Yeah. I love those last two. Cause it, it almost gives a, some of the chance to fight for, for a candidate yeah. that they feel strongly about, um, right. Either way. Right. Right. The first one, you know, just like, oh, they said this during the interview that I thought was so great. Like, this is why. And at least give mm-hmm. someone a chance to bring that up versus I feel like if you're not asking that type of question, someone goes, eh, am I going to risk my, you know, my political capital to go out on a limb for this person I met for 30 minutes in an interview, maybe, right? For sure. But if it's built into the process that I think that that makes it much more likely to actually happen. Right? That's great. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, do you have any type of system that you use to break down technical questions? I, I think you, you mentioned, right, going through the, the leak code um, grind and having companies throw, you know, really anything at you um, in these interviews because you don't, you often don't know. It could, you you right. might even go into a, a DevRel role where they're like, okay, great, here's a whiteboarding question, right? So yeah. um, do you have any system you use to break, break it down, especially if it's something where you don't immediately go, oh, I know how to do this, right? Yeah. Um, and honestly, I've, I've been around long enough where every new problem I see, I'm like, wait, how do I do this? So I have a four point system that I use. I know I I do a lot of, uh, point things on, on the talk here, but, um, I follow a four point system. The first one is repeat that problem back in your own words, just to make sure like you understand kind of the, the nature of what the problem is. Um, and so don't just like, especially if it's like shared on the screen that you're not just like reading it back, you know, but like collect your thoughts for a moment and say, okay, if I understand, right, you're asking me to solve a problem that does blah, 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 and like put it in your own words. Um, and, and try to account for like edge cases and things like that as well. From there, the second one is ask questions. 
while you're thinking about it and while you're sort of repeating it back to them, you're probably going to have some questions in mind. Sometimes questions leave out edge cases specifically because they want to see like, are they going to ask me about that? Um, cause it, it's, it's a kind of a curiosity check of like, Oh wait, what would happen if this kind of input happened, you know, or like, is this array of numbers that you're giving me? Are they always going to be positive? Is it always going to be ascending? Like, is it ever going to be mixed? Is it ever going to be negative? Will it ever be float values? Like just try to ask some clarifying questions. And sometimes that'll help you understand edge cases and it'll kind of drive your thinking a little bit more about like, Oh, well, if that's the case, then could this ever happen? Um, that's sometimes what a lot of interviewers are listening for of like, you know, um, if I give you a real problem on the job, are you going to kind of push back and say, well, not push back, but like ask questions, but like, Hey, wait, have, have we thought about how the customer might do this or what sort of scenario if the customer does that? Um, because those are the kinds of questions I would want you to raise. If I hire you on my team and I give you some work to do, I want to know that you're going to ask good questions about that. So, um, so part two is ask questions. Part three, then I would say plan out the work that you're going to do, uh, write out some notes, uh, more effectively sometimes is writing out pseudocode, mm -hmm. um, which is hard with some higher level languages. Cause you know, a lot of high level languages are practically pseudocode already. Um, and I, I joke a lot about that, especially with Python, but when I write out pseudocode, my pseudocode looks a lot like Python, but I tell people like write pseudocode, like you're writing a food recipe, like crack an egg in a bowl don't write your pseudocode so specific, like hold the egg this way, tap it this way, pull the shell apart, make sure it drops into the bowl. Like your pseudocode can just literally take the form of like crack an egg in a bowl, like loop over the array. Now inside that loop, you know, look for this, this value or that value or compare this value with the one following it or something like write it high level enough that you're kind of getting the point across to the interviewer. Um, but it's really for you to shape what it is you're about to go build in, in the real code but it helps you communicate your design decisions and your problem solving uh, as well to the interviewer. Now, by that point, you've already done most of the problem solving, but it might help you get into those edge cases and those corner cases a little bit more. And so by writing out the pseudocode, it's, it's a little more of your design knowledge. Like how do you design the code that you're about to build? And, and again, for the senior level devs, like why are you going to do it that way? And then from there, you ask the interviewer, what's your opinion of this? I tell people to word it that way, as opposed to, does this look okay to you? Am I on the right track? Because that kind of projects a lack of confidence in yourself mm -hmm. of like, does this look all right? Or am I on the right track here? It's like, well, if you're not confident, you know, what should my expectation be as the interviewer? And so I, I coach people like, just ask them, what's your opinion of this? And they'll tell you if you're at an on-site interview, they already want to hire you. They're looking for a reason to say yes. When I'm screening resumes, I've got thousands of these things. I'm looking for a reason to say no, like any little thing about that resume, like no, 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 maybe, no, yes, no, maybe, like because I got so many of these to get through. I'm I'm literally skimming them, like to look for reasons to not call you. But once I get you into that interview process, I think you can do the job. I'm hoping to say yes, and so interviewers will help they will give you an honest opinion. If they think you're missing something about an edge case or something like that, they're going to start asking you questions about like, Hey, tell me a little bit more about that data structure you want to use. Like, why are you choosing that one? And that's not, it doesn't, it shouldn't ever come across like, why are you choosing that one? 
but it should come across as a, as a genuine curiosity, like, Hey, tell me more about why you chose to use an array versus a hash in that scenario. Or, you know, what are some other choices you could make about that return type? Because I want to make sure that you're thinking through that design a little bit deeper. People that just jump straight into code, they tend to refactor the code a lot more later. And debugging the code can sometimes be harder. And so by writing out the pseudocode ahead of time, you're making an upfront investment in your time. And it does take a couple of minutes, but that couple of minutes is usually much shorter than the amount of time you spend refactoring your code and debugging your code later when things go wrong, or you realize like, oh, how I started coding that. Now I've, I've kind of put myself in a corner over here and I got to like go refactor a bunch of codes so that I can do this part a little bit differently. And, and the time that you spend doing all of that and making sure like kind of that ripple effect of like, if I change this, it's going to change all these other things. If you just design it out a little bit more before you get started, it alleviates a lot of that, not entirely, but it tends to reduce it quite a lot. And so you might spend two or three minutes working through pseudocode, but if you don't, and you just immediately jump into your code, sometimes it can cause like 10, 15 minutes worth of refactoring and debugging. And so it's kind of like test-driven development where you're making that upfront investment in time to reduce the pain later. Um, and so those are the, those are the kind of the, well, the fourth stage then I guess is like actually start on the code, like get going cause you're on the clock. Um, and so repeat the question to me, ask me questions about it, design what your answer is going to be, and then go get started. Yeah, that's great. I love the focus too on the, the pseudocoding. Cause I think that that almost becomes the difficult part rather than the coding, right? Cause if you've yeah. got that basically modeled and mapped then you can reference it while you're, you're coding, the code is just putting those, you know, that, that pseudocode into actual code and it, I don't know, significantly easier. I, I try to do that. Sometimes it's hard. I get stuck, you know, when I'm in the pseudocoding process of like, Oh, I don't know if I, if I know how to actually solve this, but then I try to at least, okay, let's get down my idea on paper. Right. And then right. we'll come back. And if I actually have to figure out how to do that while I'm coding, okay, well then at least I've got most of this done. <laughs> right. 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 Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Great. Um, do you have any advice or tips for engineers who are going into technical interviews? Again, having just gone through a bunch um, and we've kind of talked to this, this idea, right? What to do if you get stuck, any other um, general advice or tips? It's okay to be nervous. We know you're nervous. Um, and I would say like, they're probably nervous too, especially for companies where they don't train their interviewer. They're going to walk into that interview going, I hope I don't say something stupid or they're not going to want to work here. And then it looks bad on me. Um, or what if they tell my boss, I did an awful job as a, as an interviewer. Um, they're, they're probably nervous too, unless they're like really seasoned and they've been around and, and they've done interview training, then it's, it's going to feel like a very natural conversation. I'm a big fan of, of saying like interviews should be conversation, not interrogation. Um, but it's okay to be nervous, totally all right to be nervous. And it's okay to take a moment to collect your thoughts. Like as soon as I finish asking a question, you don't have to start speaking right away. It's okay to take five, 10 seconds and, you know, kind of gather your thoughts as long as I can tell that you're thinking about it, not just like staring at a bug on the wall or something, but, um, like being able to, to say like, Oh, it's a good question. Let me, let me think about like how I want to answer that. Just give me a sec. I'm just going to, you know, whether you're like write out some notes or, I like to jot down the question that they actually ask um, so that if I get stumped on something, it's okay to say you don't know. Um, and I can say like, you know what? I don't have a good answer for that. Um, but I would like to kind of follow up on this. Like, is it okay? Can I get your contact info and like follow up mm -hmm. with you on this later on? Like as soon as this is over, I'm going to go look that thing up and like go learn about it because I don't have an answer. 
um, that can be a big important step too, like showing that you're teachable, that you can go learn something, but also the humility of, I don't know, that makes a big difference. Um, one of my recent interviews, they said, you know, what do you do when you don't know something? And I'm like, I tell people, I don't know, like in, in a developer relations role, it's a hard thing to do because you're up on a stage or you're doing a, a webinar, a tech talk, and someone asks a question, you don't have an answer. I mean, the only answer appropriate answer is I'm going to go find out and I'll get back to you. Like, give me your contact info. I'm going to get back to you. Um, and then later on, they're like, do you have any questions for me? And I asked a question where I stumped them and they're like, I'm going to take a page out of your book and say, I don't know. <laughs> I'm like, all right, brilliant answer. You know, it's like you, you have to have that, that humility. Um, but yeah, it's okay not to know things. Um, it's okay. Um, again, my job as the interviewer is to find out what you do know and what you don't know. And it's okay not to have answers. Um, so those would be the, the main things is like follow up. Like I, I always encourage people like, you know, whether you're reaching out on LinkedIn to send a connection request or even just an in-mail request, if you, if you pay for LinkedIn, but just find some way of sending them a note later saying, Hey, I really appreciated your time. Thank you for spending that time with me. By the way, here are these topics that we discussed that I didn't have a good answer for. Um, you know, by then they've probably already done their score and they've probably already made a decision and like following up with them on that is probably not going to sway their decision, but it could for an entry level dev, because a lot of people don't bother with a thank you note. Um, and so sometimes that's, that'll set you apart. Uh, you know, just showing them like, Hey, I'm, I'm grateful for your time. Uh, and sharing that, uh, after the fact can, can make a big difference. Yeah. And check out Tech Interview Guide too, right? That's the other yep. other big tip for yeah, people. For sure, <laughs> got a lot uh, of a lot of free content on there. There's no ads, and and I also do like a, a daily email series that you can subscribe to as well, where every day you get a couple of questions, and I don't I don't answer the question in the email for most of them. It's just, hey, as a hiring manager, this is why I ask this kind of question, or why this kind of question might be important to me and my company. Um, just to give a bit of a peek behind the curtain of as a hiring manager, this is what's going through my mind. This is why, you know, my team might ask you this kind of question. Um, and it does focus a lot on early career and web development type of roles. And so the, the email list won't be appropriate for everybody. Um, but I'm looking at expanding the content right now, but it's all free. There's no ads. Uh, the only thing I need is an email address to sign up. Um, and all the other content on the website is totally free. There's no ads on any of the pages, anything like that. I'm just happy to give back to community. I love it. You, you mentioned early career. Do you have different advice or the same advice for, for early career engineers or maybe people who this is the first or second job? Um, honestly, a lot of the advice is going to be the same. Like just be yourself, be humble about what you know. Um, it's okay to say when you don't know something, um, I think giving the company feedback on their interview process can also be helpful for them to learn and grow. Like, especially if you have a bad experience, you need to speak up. Um, I've definitely coached people on that in the past where they're like, Oh, you know, something felt a little off, especially for, you know, historically marginalized and excluded people in tech where they do an interview and they'll chat with me afterwards. And they're like, yeah, like I got treated really badly. I'm like, you need to tell them, you need to speak up. You need to tell them like what happened. Otherwise it's not going to change. Um, you know, maybe it's that specific interviewer, like maybe they shouldn't be an interviewer. Maybe they shouldn't be at the company, <laughs> you know, if it's, if it was that drastically bad. And, and so I'm a big fan of like, you know, while you can also ask them for feedback, you should be providing feedback for them on like, Hey, I'm really enjoying this process so far. Like the conversation has been really flowing and it's been really great getting to know the team. Like, 
companies love to hear that, especially if somebody really stood out. Like I really enjoyed that interview with Taylor. Like that was, you know, it meant a lot. We had really good conversation. Like I'm looking forward to like working on the team. They're going to love that. They're going to like go tell Taylor like, Hey, you know, that person really enjoyed that interview. Good job. Um, and, and maybe that's going to get you more involved in interviewing because you're doing a good job as an interviewer. So giving them feedback is just as important as asking them for feedback. Um, but as far as like later in your career, uh, I think a lot of the advice is still applicable. Like, unfortunately in tech, you're going to have to do the leak code grind, uh, for development level jobs. Like that's, it's, it's a, it's a necessary evil, I think right now, because we need you to demonstrate some amount of skill as part of the interview. What I hate about leak code though, is a lot of companies are like, all right, I'm just going to go find some random problem. And, you know, it has nothing to do with what their company does. Um, and I've, I've certainly experienced that between uh, November and recently, you know, grinding on some of the leak code stuff myself, and then going to an interview where they give you a question that was completely unrelated to what the company does. Um, and, and that always feels a little off. Like some of the best interviews I've had for an engineering role was like, Hey, we're going to have this dashboard product where you have to collect some stats and calculate some stats. And so our interview challenge is exactly that you're going to go hit an API point. You're going to get some JSON data and calculate like averages or something like that in order to, <clears throat> in order to, uh, you know, send that back out to like a front end dashboard. That interview experience was amazing because that's exactly what I'm going to be doing on the job. And so you get to yeah. highlight a lot of what, you know, it's like, so you get to highlight a lot of what you know, and you get to explain like, Hey, for now, as far as the interview goes for the sake of time, I'm just going to assume that endpoint is always there. It's always going to respond, but I would want to be watching for like 400 errors, 500 errors. This is how I might catch some exceptions around. Like if the service goes down, I want to give a good experience to my user. So I need to catch that exception, not just crash and send back my own 500. Like I want to be able to give some kind of response back saying, Hey, this didn't work. Try again later. Or, you know, if I'm being rate limited, then so are they. So I need to give my user a good experience. And so Sometimes you don't even have to implement that stuff, but being able to talk about it during an interview, especially for the more senior devs, I think is an important thing to uh, think about as well. I call that the, you're almost hand-waving off um, things, right? At least if you're yeah. throwing the idea out there, um, sometimes people go, okay, they check that box, right? They don't have to dive right. into it fully, exactly. but check the box that they know that's a thing, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Great. Um, well, before we move on to the interview interview portion, uh, maybe something folks can relate to. Do you have any interviewing um, horror stories you're willing to share? I mean, probably one of the worst recent uh, experiences, just kind of touching back on on the leak code grind. Uh, one company asked a, a question. It was like, go find, you know, like we're going to call a method and we're going to pass in an N value and we want to find the nth closest like latitude longitude points against a target point so your parameters are going to be this n value and a target latitude longitude and you're going to have like an array of latitude longitude points and we want to find <clears throat> the end points that are closest to that target and half of the time i'm trying to solve this problem I'm like okay i know it's a heap problem i know i have to sort the data in some way so i'm you know probably want to use a heap and so on i'm trying to break it down in my head but Honestly, more of my brain cycles were like, why are you asking me this kind of question? Your company does nothing with <laughs> geolocation. You have nothing to do with latitude and longitude. Like this is so unrelated to what you do. Um, a nightmare on my part, 
uh, back in the day, uh, back in like 2005, 2006, I was interviewing at Yahoo when it was cool to work at Yahoo back then. Um, it's still cool to work at Yahoo, but not as it wasn't like the glamorous place to go work, uh, or, or, or it was back in, back in 2005, 2006. And, uh, so I get to this interview and I, I think I'm crushing the technical side. Like everything they're asking me, I'm, I'm doing really well. They stumped me on one problem. And at the end of it, they're like, all right, well, we're going to switch gears and we're going to ask you some different questions. And in my mind, I'm like, oh, they're going to switch to like behavioral questions and whatever. And I'm like, all right, let's, you know, let's do it. And, uh, they're like, who, uh, who won the last Super Bowl? And I'm like, uh, <laughs> and, and so I, I'm like, I, I don't know. And they're like, okay, uh, who's your favorite quarterback? And I'm like, I'm just going to mention like some quarterback name that I know. And they're like, who are your like favorite three teams? And so I name three teams that I happen to know were football teams. And they're like, do you know who won the last Heisman trophy? I'm like, no. And they're like, well, what about this stat? And what about that stat? And I'm like, why all the football questions? And they're yeah. like, you know, you're interviewing with a fantasy football team here at Yahoo. Right. And I'm like, Oh crap. No. I'm like the recruiter told me to study design patterns on the way up here, not football stats. Like, um, and I'm like, okay, here's the deal. I'm from Canada. We have the CFL, not the NFL. Our field is 110 yards long and it's narrower. We get three downs instead of four. We don't have the super bowl. We have the great cup. And they're like, don't care. <laughs> And so I didn't get the job because I wasn't a culture fit because I don't give a rip about football. It's like, ask me hockey stats. And they're like, we're not fantasy hockey. We're fantasy football. I'm like, I'm from Canada though. Like literally ask me anything about hockey. I'll tell you anything about hockey, like Stanley cup winners, like the whole bit, like any team I'll name like the top five players on every team. Like ask me anything about NHL. And they're like, no, we don't care. Much smaller fantasy <laughs> hockey, uh, for sure, uh, for sure. Population, <laughs> yeah, and and so that that was like the worst one for me because on a technical level, I matched everything, but they didn't want me on the team because I wasn't going to be bringing that culture passion every day of like I love the NFL, I know everything about the NFL, um, and so for me that was like the one that sticks out to me of like where I absolutely was not a culture fit for the team. <laughs> But on a technical level, I was going to bring the skill, but I wouldn't have given a rip about what I was doing day to day. And so they didn't hire me. Sure. Well, <laughs> I mean, maybe that's a good thing in the long run, right? If you didn't really want that, that job. For sure. Uh, For sure. It's, <laughs> it's a, that's, that's a fun story, though. Uh, great. Well, then let's take a little break here. When we come back, uh, we'll move on to the technical portion. Sounds great. Thank you for watching the first half of the Professional Technical Interviewee. The technical interview will be released one week from this episode, so be sure to subscribe to make sure you don't miss it. New episodes are released on the first four Thursdays of each month. Find us on YouTube at youtube.com slash Orsid or on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. And remember, keep practicing.